Hey guys, I'm Meredith. And I'm Sam. And this is Pardon My Crime. This week, we have a bit of a change of plans. So, the case that we were initially going to do this week that I was working on, I found a little bit more information on, so we are going to hold off just a little bit longer, but I promise you it is well worth it. And so, instead of that, this week we are going to be giving you part two of Sally Horner, so you won't have to wait quite as long as we originally were going to make you wait. Buckle up. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a dark one. Oh jeez. And we want to give a shout out to Stitcher. And don't forget to check out True Crime Week this week. They are kicking off the spookiest month of the year with some of the best and creepiest true crime podcasts. Um, so today we are gonna do part two of Sally Horner. I do want to go ahead and put it out there that this episode does have a trigger warning. Uh, for rape and sexual abuse, particularly of children. When I'm actually going to talk about those parts, I will give a warning again so you can skip a little, skip ahead a little bit if that's something you don't want to hear me talk about. Um, I totally understand that. Um, so those warnings will be in there, but just a heads up. If you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend going to do that before you listen to this episode because you won't really know what's going on. Um, so if you haven't listened to part one, pause right now and go listen to that and then come back. Um, so part one, we left off with Sally's mother, Ella, taking her to the bus station and Sally left with the man that her mom thought to be Frank Warner to join his wife and daughters for a week-long beach vacation in Atlantic City, New Jersey. To From Camden to Atlantic City is only about an hour's drive, so they're not that far from home at this point. Um, I want to tell you about this creepy piece of garbage who is often, most most often referred to as Frank LaSalle, though that's most likely not his birth name. Birdman. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll just call him Birdman. Now, um, apparently it's really hard to find much early info on him because he's lied about so many things throughout his life. What a shady bastard. He's very shady and used a ton of aliases. Um, so we don't have pretty much any childhood information on him. A possible birth date is May 27th, 1895, though the accuracy of this estimate is completely unknown. Um, it's just a guess based on, I guess, his age and whatnot. Another Frank that was born in the time frame. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's given a couple variations on his parents' names. He once stated that they were Frank Patterson and Nora LaPlante. Another time, he had written them as Frank LaSalle and Nora Johnson. To me, it seems like the first names are probably their real names since they don't change. He does this for himself as well. Um, he seemed to always use the first name Frank for himself. Typically, only the last name changes, so I would probably make the same assumption that the first names he uses for himself and his parents are probably more than likely their real first names. We just don't know about the last names because he's a shady bitch. Um, we, don't we don't know... Don't trust Franks. No, we don't trust Franks. We don't trust Franks. <laughs> Within good reason. <laughs> we don't know where he's from, though it's 
thought to be somewhere in the Midwest, possibly Indianapolis, maybe Chicago. Again, no one really knows. He's very mysterious. (laughs) He also claimed to have served four years for a bootlegging charge at a federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas from 1924 to 28. However, the prison has no record of him being there. Why he would lie about that, I don't know, but he lies about everything. So. Maybe he just wanted to seem like more of a badass, so he has that, like, cool guy rep. Well, he's not a badass, and he's not cool. He's creepy and gross. Yeah, he's the creepy bird man. Mm-hmm. He is. Uh, one of his most notorious aliases was Frank Fogg. In the, <laughs> s- <laughs> in the summer of 1937, Frank Fogg was living in Maple Shade, New Jersey, with a wife and her nine-year-old son. <laughs> He claimed, we don't know this woman's name, he claimed that his wife took the boy and ran away with a mechanic, which may be true, but cannot be substantiated. Do love mechanics. I love them hard workers. You don't, though, because this guy also works as a mechanic. Ah, I take it back. We just don't like Frank's gross. (laughs) Yeah. However, um, it did happen. So she did leave and she took the kid with her uh, and they were gone by July 14th. Uh, Not much more than a week later. Frank himself uh, would also be fleeing town with a new wife named Dorothy Dare. That's shady shit. They yeah. were all cheating on each other. I know it. Well, I don't think he was cheating, but he's just... No, you don't run off that quick with another woman when you, you didn't know? have something set up. Well, hold on. You'll find out. I guess shortly after the wife left, um, Dorothy was not quite 18 and had, gra- just like a month before meeting him, had graduated high school. So oh, she's young. Already weird already. Yeah. Um she lived in Merchantville, which is only about ten minute a pen which is only about a ten minute drive from Maple Shade. <laughs> I can't talk today. Um, Dorothy and Frank met at a carnival and he told her that he wanted to marry her. Uh he was more than twice her age, but she didn't seem to care. And it was actually her idea for them Silver to elope. Fox, except Birdman, creepy birdman. Yeah. I I get it for certain people, but this guy ain't it. Uh, only a few days after they met, they went to Elkton, Maryland, and got married. So they did elope, and it was her idea. I don't know why. She's, you know, mm. she's 18. She's just, she wants to go off and do her thing. She just so, wanted independence from her parents. Probably. <laughs> so Dorothy's father, David, was less than thrilled at finding out this information. Um, he somehow found out he that... he should be. Yeah. He somehow found out Fogg was a fake name, and that Frank was already married. I don't know how he found this out, but he did. Uh, so he got local police to issue an eight-state warrant on kidnapping and statutory rape charges by charges by claiming that his daughter Dorothy was fifteen. Oh yikes! Yeah, this it gets interesting. So ten days after the warrant was issued, police caught up with the couple. Uh, Frank had found a job in Roxborough, Pennsylvania, which was where he was found, um, still using the same alias of Fogg. He was arrested and taken to jail in Haddonfield, New Jersey. No, not that Haddonfield. On the charge of enticing a minor and bail was withheld. At the same time, police picked up Dorothy in the Philadelphia neighborhood of Wissahickon. I think that's correct. Don't come for me if that's wrong. Um, Or do correct me if I'm wrong, but just do it nicely. Where she and Frank had rented a room together and she was also brought to jail. The officers got a bit of a surprise when they found out Dorothy was in fact not a minor and that their marriage was legitimate because, you know. So at this point, he had technically divorced his wife prior to this or separated from her legally because we don't you can't... Know. I guess if it... All right. 
We don't know. Um, Frank presented them with a certificate, with the, their marriage certificate, to prove that they were married, which, uh, you know, I understand her father not liking the situation, and clearly Frank is a huge skeezy shitbag, but if, unfortunately, if she's 18, you can't stop her from being with him just because you don't like him. Like, yes, he's creepy, and the whole situation is weird, but, like, she's 18, so, like, you can't really do anything about it. <laughs> like... Sorry, dude. Oh, like, buddy. like I get, I get why you don't like it, but like, she's she's not a minor, so there's not much you can but do. But you know who is a minor? Sally. Yes, yes, she is. <laughs> um, so Dorothy was a bit surprised at the information that Frank was previously married, though apparently she didn't really seem to believe it. So, how would you? I think she just thought that her dad was, like, making up stuff to try and... I'm almost wondering if Frank was in her ear that was like, that never happened. That's not what it was really like. Oh, he very well may have been. I bet that's what But I think part of her might have also just been like... Dad's just making shit up. Oh, he's just making that up because he doesn't want me to be with him. But she had to have gotten that idea. I I guarantee you Frank had something to do with that. Probably. He planted that somewhere. Yeah. Um, so Dorothy was released from jail, and she slipped away from her parents, not ready to give up on her marriage to Frank. So she's determined at this point. Why? <laughs> I don't know. We don't like Franks. Yeah, but she she doesn't see that at this point. She's she's 18. She's like, I'm married. Young, dumb, and full of something. Just full of, full of life. She's ready to go. The next morning, Frank appeared He's- in Delaware Township Court. Side note, these people are dead, right? So I'm not going to insult anybody by talking about all of this. Okay. This currently is in the late 30s. I think we're good. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Just making sure. (laughs) Um, Dorothy was not present. In fact, no one knew where she was, though her father, David, was present and actually punched Frank in the jaw. (laughs) Uh, But Frank testified that Dorothy had gone with him of her own free will and the charges were dropped. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, the day after the warrant for Frank was issued, there was a hit-and-run near Marlton, New Jersey, which is about half an hour from Philadelphia. A car resembling Frank's car collided with another car owned by a man named Kurt Scheffler, and the car fled the scene. In court, of course, Frank denied that he had been the driver, though the Justice of the Peace, Oliver Bowen, uh, disagreed. And on August 11th, 1937, he was fined $50 and sentenced to 15 days in jail. He also received an additional 30 days after failing to pay a $200 fine for giving false information. So, you know, he's going to jail for a few days. Um, He did hard time. So that's only about a month and a half in jail. And when he got out, Dorothy was waiting and they picked up right where they left off. Uh, Dorothy and Frank, who was now going by LaSalle again, so he's dropped the fog alias, moved to Atlantic City and were living at 203 Pacific Avenue. In 1939, so two years later, they had a daughter. We'll call her Madeline. Oh, no. A year later, in 1940, police arrived at the home and arrested LaSalle on charges of bigamy. There's not much detail to be found about the charges, whether they were from his first wife or another woman, but either way, he managed to wriggle out of it with an acquittal. Mm. So this guy's a slippery fucker. He's shady. Yeah, he, he only gets shadier. So uh, two years later, when Madeline was three, Dorothy sued Frank for desertion and non-payment of child support. Apparently, it's sort of a dare family legend that 
Dorothy discovered Frank in a car with another woman and got so angry she hit the woman over the head with her shoe. Why? <laughs> I hit him! <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not, but either way, the story seemed to hide the more sinister truth that Dorothy discovered something about her husband. She didn't know that. In the late hours of March 10th, 1942. Ooh, yay, yay, yay. Yeah. Uh, three Camden police officers entered a restaurant on Broadway near the corner of Penn and saw there was a young girl sitting by herself in one of the booths, which obviously stood out. Imagine three cops in the early 40s finding a 12-year-old girl sitting in a restaurant by herself in the middle of the night. That's that's going to stand out a little bit, right? A lot of it. <laughs> yeah. So these three officers were Acting Sergeant Edward Shapiro and two patrolmen, Thomas Carroll and Donald Watson. So the three of them entered the restaurant and found the girl. When they asked her what was going on and why she was out alone at such a late hour, um, she evaded their questioning. She's probably scared and intimidated, I'm sure, if you're 12. And three cops just, like, show up and are like, what are you doing here, kid? Well, bitch, sus. <laughs> no, she's not sus. <laughs> You'll find out. Um, so they took her back to the police headquarters where a city detective would do the questioning. So police sergeant John V. Wilkie managed to gently coax her to open up. Um, He talked to her a little bit, you know, got her comfortable. So she admitted that she had been out that night because she, quote unquote, had a date with a man who was about 40 years old. Yeah. She said that this man's name was Frank LaSalle. He had given her a card with the address and phone number of the auto body shop where he worked in Philadelphia. Damn mechanics, man. Yeah. So, trigger warning, guys. There will be mentions of sexual abuse of children for the next bit here. I'm not going to go into detail, but you may want to skip if you're not comfortable hearing about that. So, just a heads up. So, in his report, Wilkie had written that the girl said LaSalle had, quote, forced her into intimacies. She'd also told him that LaSalle made her introduce him to four of her friends and he had threatened her that if she didn't do this, he would tell her mother what she had done with him. What a little... So, so he's a class act. Dick butt. Yeah. I told you that you're going to find out just what a ass he really is. So Loretta, Margaret, Sarah, Irma, and Virginia were their names. Sarah was the oldest, having just turned 15. Um, from records, it's not clear exactly which one was the girl in the diner. But based on the girl's birth dates, it's most likely Loretta or Margaret. Um, When police brought in the four other girls to be questioned, Sergeant Wilkie reported each of them also told him that they had been raped by LaSalle. Oh, man. And remember, this is all before our story starts. So Sergeant Wilkie put out a warrant for Frank's arrest, alerting police in Philadelphia of the account they'd been given by the 12-year-old. However, police showed up at his work and he wasn't there nor did they find him at his last known address. Nobody knows how, but he somehow must have found out police were looking for him and had fled. So, you know. Police learned he had apparently gone back to using the Frank Fogg alias and were able to dig up the address in Maple Shade. And then they found out the family had moved back to Camden after finding the Maple Shade address. Police got a tip that LaSalle was now living at a house on the 1000 block on Cooper Street, which they immediately put under constant surveillance, hoping he might turn up. On the evening of March 15th, a car pulled up in front of the house with a license number that was connected to LaSalle. 
Unfortunately, when detectives rushed to the house, they found and arrested a 19-year-old who claimed he was LaSalle's brother-in-law. The fucking shocker that they found out later is that as they rushed the front of the house, Frank fucking escaped out the back door. Ah, fun. He's a slippery little mink, that one. I told you he's slippery. So LaSalle managed to evade the police for almost a year. Um, An indictment came down on September 4th, 1942, for the statutory rape of the five girls. Uh, Tips began began streaming into Camden and Philadelphia police, allegedly placing him in New Jersey and sometimes Pennsylvania, but none of those panned out. Finally, February of 1943, so, you know, a few months later, they got a tip that Frank was living at... uh, 1414 Euclid Avenue in Philadelphia in the same area where Temple University currently stands. So if you live in Philadelphia, um, you probably know exactly where that is. On February 2nd, police showed up and found LaSalle in the home alone, uh, arrested him, and took him back to Camden for arraignment. The Camden County Court judge was the one who signed the indictment, oversaw the hearing a week later on February 10th, and would eventually meet LaSalle again seven years later on an even larger scale. Um, So LaSalle pleaded not guilty to all five rape indictments, surprise, surprise, (laughs) from the grand jury, but then on March 22nd, he ended up changing his plea to no contest. Guilty. Of course. Bartholomew Sheehan was the presiding judge, and he ended up sentencing LaSalle to two and a half years on each rape charge to be served concurrently at Trenton State Prison. So that's only 12 and a half years. For five statutory rape charges. But this was the 40s, so I I don't know what things looked like back then of charges for stuff. I mean, I know that, you know, charges like that weren't as big of a... I am genuinely speechless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we definitely, though, in the last several decades have cracked down more on, like, child sexual abuse charges. Like, it wasn't as... Not as aggressively as we need to. Yeah. Oh, definitely not. Uh, While LaSalle was incarcerated, Dorothy took Madeline and moved back to Merchantville to be close to her parents, and she quickly filed a petition for divorce on January 11th, 1944, stating that Frank had committed adultery with with the five girls beginning March 9th, 1942, which was the night the first girl reported to the police, uh, the girl from the restaurant. And then at various other times between then and February of 1943, before he was finally arrested. Which, let's think about that, Dorothy. You have a daughter. These girls are children. That's not adultery. I mean, technically it is, but it's more serious than that. He's a pedophile and a rapist. Just call it what it is, girl. Like, get it together, Dorothy. We can be honest here. It's okay. Get it. Get your shit together, Carol. And then on top of that, Dorothy is the woman, the young woman, correct? Yeah. So then on top of that, not... I mean, at this this point, she's in her, like, early 20s. Yes, but at the same time, you heard rumors about how this man was married previously. He lied to you about that. Now you're finding out about this, and you're just like, oh, adultery. Yeah. He's shady. That's it? Like, not, you know, how He's could you... Shady. How could you rape five children? Like, no, it's like, oh, He's you cheated on me. Bag. Yeah. Oh, that's right. She did blame, you know, the other woman the last time. So let's blame the children. Of course. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we blame, you know, the asshole that you're married to? But whatever. So after only 14 months in prison. Bullshit. Yeah. Frank LaSalle was paroled on June 18th, 1944. For good behavior. He. 
who knows? I I don't. It, Certain charges should not get good behavior release. Well, and it doesn't even. I couldn't even find why he was paroled. He just was. So he was. It was five years. There are. I mean, the, there aren't a lot of years. Fourteen months. So 14 months. less than a year and a half. A yeah, year and two months. Oh, 12 and a half total. He was sentenced for 12 years and he only had to stay for less than two. Mm-hmm. He got two and a half years for each charge. And only had to stay for less than two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I repeat, certain charges should not get released or paroled. Of course not. But, you know. He's, I told you, he's slippery. Let's just say the five statutory rape charges deserve a little bit well, yeah, more than two Yeah, because if they had kept him like they should have, none of the rest of this would have been able to happen. Oh, that's just depressing. Yeah. So, he was paroled June 18th, 1944. He got a room at the YMCA, registered for the draft, and got his social security card. Because this is not long after um, like the social security system was put in place. So I guess because, you know, he's sketchy and apparently likes to live a little bit off the grid and under a bunch of aliases, he, I guess, hadn't registered with his social security number yet. He also had to register with the city as a convicted criminal. Oh, God forbid. Uh, He did manage to get a job as a mechanic in Philadelphia, but kept finding himself in trouble with the law. Surprise, surprise. Big shock. Um, like, dude, you just got out of a 12-year sentence in less than two. Couldn't you at least stay out of trouble? That's, like, the least you could do. Um, he had an indecent assault charge, but that was dropped on Halloween of that year. Then the following August, he got caught at a bank in Camden trying to cash a forged check for $110. Oh, my God. That's he, all you would write that for? Well, I mean, it's it's 1944, that's, that so that's... True. That's probably a lot. I don't know what that spending power is right now due to inflation, but, like, it's... Probably at least, like, over $1,000, Well, if it was say. a one-cent notebook. Five cents. Five cents. It's five cents. I'm sorry. Five-cent notebook in comparison. Yeah. So he was indicted in September and was convicted for obtaining money under false pretenses. That same month, his divorce from Dorothy was moved along and she was awarded full custody of Madeline. Big shocker. fucking time. I know. I mean, she's girl, not exactly leave. the best either. No, but girl, leave. Yeah. Find yourself a real man. Yeah. So then, I guess a little over a month later, uh, the divorce was final on November 23rd. So, I'm... That's, like, very close to your birthday, and that's all I can think about right now. I know. You know Ted Bundy's birthday is the day before mine? Oh, that's creepy. Of course he's a fucking Sagittarius. A fellow Sagittarius. What are you trying to say? Actually, majority are Pisces. There are a few heavy hitters... There are a few heavy hitter serial killers that are Sagittarius. You want to it's know like something? Sagittarius, Pisces, Virgo, yep. and Taurus are some of the though? most common. Do you know the only ones that are Scorpios are like Charles Manson and the ones that manipulate Of course Charles other Manson people. is a Scorpio. <laughs> I mean, double check me because I'm not 100% sure, but tell me that it's not the funniest you shit you've up. ever heard. It's the ones that are manipulating everybody. I'm going to look it up. November 12th, he's a Scorpio. Fuck! I'm mad and excited. Like, I don't know if I should be upset. 
Um, on March 18th, 1946, LaSalle returns to Trenton State Prison to begin serving a sentence of 18 months to five years on the forged check charges. And the clock had also picked back up on his time for the rape charges since he had reoffended, which violated his parole, as we know. And, and, and yet, he got free again? Yeah, you'll, you'll see. You'll see. Just wait. So somehow... On January 15th, 1948, he got paroled again and was back on the street. It's very likely he probably went downtown to the Camden YMCA to get a cheap room to stay in. And the YMCA was directly across from the Woolworths on Broadway and Federal. The five cent notebook. Mm-hmm. Not the five cent notebook. So these are the events in Frank's life leading up to the point where we left off with Sally. So in part one, when we left it off, it was June 14th, 1948. Ella Horner took her daughter, Sally, to the Camden, New Jersey Greyhound bus station and put her on a bus to Atlantic City with a man she knew as Frank Warner, the father of Sally's alleged school friends for a week-long summer vacation. Gross. First week, Sally kept up some contact with her mom, but it was infrequent and eventually stopped. Ella began to worry, and she was feeling guilty she had believed the story from this man that she had figured out was obviously a lie. Yeah, but you can't feel guilty about, you know, believing somebody's other manipulation. No, I get why she did, like... Well, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, obviously, but... She was... I'm sorry. You just can't beat yourself over that. She was still working long, hard hours. Um, honestly, the biggest reason sh- was because she needed to make sure she had enough money to pay the electrical and phone bills so that if Sally called, she'd be able to answer, which is really sad. Aww. Yeah. On December 10th, uh, so almost six months since she last saw Sally, the Philadelphia Inquirer published an article titled, A Christmas Tree Glows, A Lonely Mother Waits. That's not a Christmas miracle. No. Um, Ella decorated and put up her Christmas tree because she had said that it was her way of keeping her hopes up. Like, if she didn't put up the tree, then that meant she had given up the hope of her return. But if she put it up, maybe Sally would come home. Which is like... Oh! Yeah. Doesn't that just hurt your heart? That's heartbreaking. It just just hurts my heart. She's such a caring mother. She is. Though, because, I mean, she obviously could have just... She's gone. Well, yeah, but I mean, I don't. Hopefully, I mean, most there are some moms who, if they're not, shit, yeah, but most moms are gonna be like sad that their child is missing. So, Sally's niece Diana, so Susan's baby, was five months old at this point, but it was bittersweet because while they were happy to have the baby, Sally had been so excited to be an aunt. Remember we talked about oh, that? Oh yeah. And she wasn't there to see her. That is very bittersweet. Yeah. But Susan and her husband, Al, pretty much just threw themselves into being parents, working in their greenhouse they owned to keep their minds occupied. Because, you know, life kind of has to go on, even though they're still worried about Sally. So April of 1949, Sally's 12th birthday comes around and there was still no news, good or bad. Uh, But the case was kept open and Marshall Thompson of the Camden police was the one to track every single lead that was coming in, which there weren't many at that point, but he was still keeping up with everything. A month prior, on March 17th, the Camden County Prosecutor's Office added another more serious indictment of kidnapping to the existing charges that he already had. Yeah, so abduction only carried, apparently only carried a maximum sentence of a few years at that time, but kidnapping upped it 
to anywhere between 30 and 35. So for someone Frank's age, that was basic, essentially a life sentence. He's but in his, like, 40s or 50s. He's slippery. Well, he is, but maybe he won't always be. You never know. Records. I hope to God that's foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Unfortunately, there aren't any surviving records to explain exactly why they raised the charge to a more serious one, but it's possible they maybe received a tip or some information on where he might be and figured it might help catch him, or it could have been over-concerned about the statute of limitations on the original abduction charge, um, but we don't know since there's there's no record that can be found now because this was a long time ago. Sadly, over the next months, the case faded from the public's attention. Other local crimes shifted the focus of the community. And so as public interest waned, the family began to be less outspoken, um, but of course they were still always worried. But without news coverage, they weren't going to get as many answers or reassurances, and they knew that after this long, they at least had to sort of try to live their lives and let the police do their job to hopefully find her. So basically, like, the, you know, life life has to move on, and Keep on if trucking. news comes in, then they can move from there. In August of 1949, baby Diana turned one. Aww. Yeah. Um, Al was still running the greenhouse, and Susan came in and helped when she could. Ella was still living in the Linden Street home, but it was a bit of a nightmare living there, which I can only imagine. Um, she said it was, quote, it was so different when Sally was there. She was so cheerful and full of life. <laughs> Ella had trouble sleeping, often getting up and going into Sally's room in the middle of the night, she would sit and take out her toys and games and just sit and look at them. She would wash and rewash Sally's clothes. She said, quote, so they would be ready for her when she came back. That also, like, it's one of those things where it's like, if you really, if you do that, it does feel like they're still there. Yeah. They're still walking it, around wearing their clothes. Yeah, so I, I think I it's a way for that. her to, like, keep herself busy and, like, try and keep up the hope of, like... She's coming she'll, home. She'll come home. She yeah. was manifesting. Exactly. <laughs> she was putting that out in the universe. So she kept losing her jobs, um, sometimes unable to pay, pay her bills for weeks. Okay, to be fair, you lost your daughter. So she's like, having a hard time. She's, she's clearly going through yeah, it right now. She's unable to really hold on to a job. Um, sometimes the electricity was shut off. Or her phone would get disconnected. Oof. Sometimes she went to Florence to stay with Al and Susan and help with the baby. But otherwise, she was all alone with her thoughts about how much she held herself responsible for Sally's disappearance. Which, like, of course, like, she's not responsible. But I can only imagine as a mother, you're, like, you've Terrifying. got that guilt of, like, I put her on that bus. Like, it's my fault. Yeah, how did fault. I not know? Which, of course, you can't ever know something like this is going to happen. So, Mitchell Cohen was the Camden County prosecutor who made himself a bit of a reputation. All good. Uh, not like a bad reputation, you know. Some prosecutors make themselves not a great reputation. Um, he helped with a lot of pretty big cases in the late 40s around Camden and surrounding areas. And even though there were some pretty high-profile cases he worked during that time, he never gave up on Sally's case. Oh, good. He knew Sally was still missing and Frank LaSalle was still out there somewhere. He was like, we're going to find this girl and we're going to bring her home. He was determined. So we will we'll never know all the exact details of what happened to Sally during her time with Frank LaSalle. 
Particu- nor do we want to. Of, oh, yeah, I definitely don't want to. Particularly since neither she nor her family ever spoke much about it after a certain point. And, of course, we'll never know exactly what she thought or felt. There's a lot of things that, you know... Again, I don't, I don't know. want to. Um, well, there's a lot of things that there either were no records of or records didn't survive in the last, you know, 70-some years. Um, we do know after about two months in Atlantic City, Frank moved Sally to Baltimore, Maryland, where they lived for around eight months from August to 19, August 1948 to April 1949. There's no record of any friends or any people still living who knew her at the time. Um, it is known that she went to a Catholic school in the city, but there are no surviving records from there either. Uh, cases like this are fairly fairly rare now and even more rare back then, uh, both stranger abductions and child abductions where they're held for a significant amount of time still alive. We've seen this in cases like Elizabeth Smart, Colleen Stan, J.C. Dugard, the Cleveland Three. You know, they go out to stores, schools, some even went traveling um, without asking for help because they've been so conditioned like psychologically by their captors. In some cases, even having children with them, like J.C. Dugard and Amanda Berry from the Cleveland Three. Um, we know these stories because they've gotten to tell their stories after being rescued. Some have even written books. So we have a, a pretty good first-hand look into how these situations can go uh, from their accounts. So Frank and Sally leave Camden and took a taxi to the bus depot in Philadelphia. They left their clothes and photos behind and left quickly. Um, and they got on a bus bound for Baltimore at 11 a.m. By this point, Frank was claiming to see this is how he managed to get away with this for so long. So Frank was claiming to be Sally's father, and she had to go along with the story to avoid punishment. So that was his cover. It was a three-hour trip from Philly to Baltimore, and they may not have been alone. Sally later said a woman had joined them on the trip, who she knew as Miss Robinson, who apparently Frank had said was some sort of assistant or secretary, because remember, as far as Sally knows, Frank's an FBI agent, so. The bus made one stop along the way somewhere in Delaware, then moved on to Route 40, which turned into the Pulaski Highway. They arrived in Baltimore just after 2.15 in the afternoon, and Miss Robinson, if she actually existed, left the picture around this time. So they collected their luggage, likely took some sort of public transit, um, be it a cab or a city bus or something like that, um, downtown where they stayed for at least the next few days. So Frank needed to find work. It's possible he found a job at the Belvedere Hotel, which was less than a mile's walk from West Franklin Street where they were thought to be staying. This would also explain why he later listed a Hotel Bellman as a reference in later court documents. So we don't know for sure, but like, that's a good possibility. It was close by. Um, publicly, Frank and Sally kept up the facade of a father-daughter relationship. Privately, however, the power imbalance was growing more and more in Baltimore. I'm just mad. I'm so angry. You're going to get more angry. Uh, trigger warning. Uh, according to Sally, it was once they were in Baltimore that rape became a regular occurrence. Since he wanted to keep up appearances and an illusion of normalcy, this is probably why he did send her to school. Um, after all, summer's over, an 11-year-old alone while he's at work, not at school. That would draw a lot of attention. Is she 11 here? Oh, yeah, she is 11 here. Sorry. Oh. Because this is, we've backtracked a little bit. 
so this is um right after so he had her in atlantic city for like a couple months and then he takes her to baltimore so she's still 11 at this point oh i thought she was 12 when she got that yeah um of course, he couldn't completely control her while she was at school during the days, uh, but by this point, he'd broken her down so much psychologically that between, you know, between threats of punishment or sending her to jail and the sexual abuse and then apologies and treats, so the, the you know, the classic grooming abuser cycle of, you know, the, the positive reward and then, you know, you break them down and punish them and then you give them a reward again and then you know that fun stuff he probably felt pretty confident that she'd do whatever he said even when he wasn't around because he'd conditioned her enough by this point in september 1948 they moved to barclay which is a neighborhood on the east side of baltimore to enroll sally in saint anne's catholic school They lived in an apartment around East 20th Street between Barclay and Greenmount Avenues, which was a block up from the local cemetery. It was a middle-class neighborhood of brick homes, um, and neighbors seemed to tend to keep to themselves for the most part, which was good for Frank, because that meant people weren't being nosy or asking a lot of questions. During the eight months that Sally was living and going to school in Baltimore, she was not Sally. Frank had given her a new name. Madeline LaPlante might sound familiar. So she had to, she did, she was doing well in school. She had to avoid punishment at home, but she also um, likely didn't really want to draw any extra attention to herself, sort of flying under the radar. So, you know, she was gonna, she was gonna do, you know, try to do, keep her grades up. It's not fully known why LaSalle chose a Catholic school for Sally, both in Baltimore and elsewhere later on. But um, no one ever remembered him being a big churchgoer or a religious person. And Sally actually likely attended a Protestant church prior to her abduction with her mother. Um, It's thought that this choice could possibly be because they didn't have to follow the same rules and regulations as public schools. They're also less likely to ask questions, you know, of a new student arriving later in the school year. But it's also a good place to hide in plain sight for Frank since we know there are a lot of dark things that have been hidden by the Catholic Church over the decades, it's possible that, you know, he saw there was enabling happening or no one would really ask Sally any questions and he thought this was a good opportunity to go undetected. So that's a possibility. One day in March 1949, Frank told Sally that they were leaving Baltimore, that the FBI had assigned him a new case that required him to move southwest to investigate. This poor girl, because at 11, 12, whatever she is right now, I would have believed that. Well, yeah, she has no idea. Like, why would she... She doesn't have any reason to think that he is, like, making that up. Yeah. Well, plus, at that age, you're still hopeful in the world. Like, you're just... Right. Like, you still want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Like, you don't... You're not jaded. You don't think people are just going to lie to you because they're weird and creepy. Like they are. Of course. Frank. Especially this guy. So by this point, she's been with him for nine months. She had no way of knowing that the real reason they were leaving was because Mitchell Cohen, the prosecutor, had just indicted him on the more serious kidnapping charge that I mentioned that came on March 17th. So police hadn't located them, but with these more serious charges meant a more serious search and better probability of arrest. 
So instead of flushing him out like they'd hoped these new charges might, it actually caused him to flee the entire East Coast. So, you know, had kind of the opposite effect of what they wanted. They figured that if there were more serious charges, maybe it would kind of, you know, help them be able to hone in on him. But obviously that didn't happen. Get him! So from Baltimore, LaSalle took Sally over 1,300 miles to Dallas, arriving on April 22nd, 1949, and they were there for the next 11 months. They kept up with the father-daughter charade in Dallas. LaSalle's story originally was that he had taken her from her mother to provide her with a more stable upbringing, claiming her mother was unable to properly care for her. They moved into a quiet, well-maintained trailer park on West Commerce Street, which was located pretty close to the heart of downtown Dallas. The mothers in the park mostly stayed at home, and the fathers worked on farms or at gas stations or steel companies in the surrounding areas. Uh, Neighbors here were a little closer than than they'd been in their Baltimore neighborhood, meaning they paid more attention, they could, could get to know Sally, or so they thought they did. LaSalle had yet again changed their names. Sally was now going by Florence Planette. Uh, Frank also changed his story from the divorced father to telling people that he was widowed. So, you know, not an important reason, but it's interesting that he keeps just, like, changing his shit up. So, like in Baltimore, uh, Frank got a job as a mechanic, still keeping Sally in the dark as she still thinks he works for the FBI, Um, She was once again enrolled in Catholic school, Our Lady of Good Counsel Academy, which was about a seven-minute drive from the trailer park. In 1961, the academy was actually absorbed as part of another school, and no former records survived. So, once again, we don't really have any records from the school. Records just don't stand the test of time. Apparently not, especially back then. I think we've gotten a little bit better about that now. Like, especially things are digital, and there's you know that whole digital footprint but back then i guess i mean i'm sure like there were fires and things getting moved around boxes probably got lost or destroyed like that's true yeah that's true yeah. and i'm sure stuff like that was really hard to keep a hold of yeah. and i don't know if you've seen papers yeah. that are more than 20 years old but that shit gets faded quick yeah well and i'm i'm sure probably after so many years they may even destroy some records if they're like these are just past students well i know on the financial side of it that there is a certain amount of years that you have to hold on to things for auditing purposes right but past a certain point because you know that was over well so you know what over like 10 over 10 years later they were absorbed into another school so things probably got lost and then after some point they probably started you know destroying things or whatever purging old records uh LaSalle did hold on to a report card of Sally's from between September 1949 and February 1950 she was still keeping up her grades for the most part the only time she received a grade lower than A's and B's was in her last month at at the school which is probably because she's struggling. I was gonna say for somebody who's going through such a hard time, I'm she shocked was a she was able to keep. Girl. Yeah, I'm shocked she was able to keep up her grades. Like my gosh, with all of that psychological I'm- warfare going on. At first, as far as their neighbors could tell, everything seemed to be normal. Uh, Sally seemed to be a pretty typical twelve-year-old. They knew Frank didn't really let her go anywhere alone, other than school, but. You know, I guess they thought that could be chalked up to just a protective single father. Sally never really showed any signs of distress, and she 
she didn't ask for help or anything so you know there's no reason for them to be alarmed he could just especially he's feeding everybody this story of like he's a single dad so they could just think he's you know protective of his kid if he you know i mean i would think it's weird if he's that she never is out of his sight but i mean i guess yeah sally seemed to enjoy taking care of the home baking cleaning she had a dog who apparently she spoiled the crap out of that is adorable i'm honestly shocked that he let her get a dog i was gonna say that yeah and he gave her frank gave her a generous allowance for things like clothes treats candy anything like that she would go shopping swimming if Some, I didn't know any better, I'd be like, oh, he treats her so well. Yeah. And what a good until, dad. Yeah. Um, she would go shopping, swimming. Sometimes they would have dinner at neighbor's trailers. Sometimes Sally would even go to these dinners by herself. So he's letting her have a little bit of a leash. But like I said, he's probably you knows she's so conditioned that she's, fine. she's not going to say anything. She's going to follow his orders, even if he's not around. Disgusting. Disgusting. He's gross. A neighbor, Josephine, stated, quote, There were several times we noticed the need for the love and care of a mother, but we both felt that the father was doing a good job of providing better living conditions for her. And the consensus among the neighbors was that they, quote, seemed happy and entirely devoted to each other. So, according to them, they didn't see anything weird, but, you know, they're only seeing what he wants them to on the surface. There were a few neighbors who, sort of after the fact, after the whole story breaks later, were a bit surprised to hear the news of what had really been going on. Uh, Maud Smilly, what a name, who lived, who lived in the trailer near theirs, said, quote, Sally spent a day at the beauty parlor with me. I gave her a permanent and she never mentioned a thing. She should have known that she could have confided in me. Just call it a perm. Like a normal person. That's what they called it back then. It's a perm. It's We abbreviate everything now. <laughs> but we didn't in the 50s, which is probably when she said it. Uh, Nelrose File, also a great name, was quoted in a later court document as saying, Sally was in my home many times a day, and she had access to several phones should she choose to use one. Sally had plenty of time to talk to me if she had wanted to, and I'm sure she knew me well enough to know if she had said anything about being kidnapped, I would have helped her. But of course, we all know how these sort of situations tend to go, like we talked about. She was manipulated. Exactly. They condition their victims so thoroughly that even out of, even out in normal settings where their abuser isn't present, they often stay loyal to them, or at the very least, they don't say anything out of fear. They've been convinced there's no hope of being rescued and that if they speak out, they'll either be caught by the abuser and punished or that no one will believe them or want to help them so they don't say anything. So Sally didn't confide in these neighbors. She probably felt she couldn't trust them, especially since she was sure that people may not believe her if she told them, but... She was, in her head, he was also an FBI agent. He can hear everything. Exactly. Well, and, you know, he's threatened her. She still thinks that if she doesn't comply, she's going to go to jail for stealing that notebook. Even after all this time, I'm sure. Uh, Girl, the crimes committed do not equal. So, um, she did finally talk to someone. This person believed her, and she eventually emboldened Sally to make the most important decision of her life. God bless 
whoever she finally God bless this woman. In December of 1948, Ruth Janish and her family moved into the Commerce Street trailer park. After they'd already been living there a few months, in April of 1949, a man who seemed to be in his 50s and a young girl he claimed was his daughter moved into the trailer next door. The girl had introduced herself as Florence Planette, and even though Ruth's daughters were younger, five, six, and seven, uh, she seemed to like them, and they loved her immediately, which, you know, every girl is like, they, you have that, like, older girl that you're like, oh, she's, she's so, so cool. cool. I want to be her friend. I hope she likes me. Exactly. I feel like that's exactly how this went. Oh, absolutely. So, some question Ruth's motives for paying attention to the pair, but she did seem to notice something odd in the relationship between the man and the girl that others had missed. By 1949, Ruth was 33 years old and had something like nine children. Like, I don't... Ow. I couldn't get an exact number. I mean, I have friends that By 33, she had nine children. Oh my god. Yeah. She must have been popping them out every day. Just, just racking them up. (laughs) There was something that she could see clearly about Sally, the way her smile didn't seem to reach her eyes the strange closeness between her and the man who was claiming to be her father. She later recounted, quote, he never let Sally out of his sight, except when she was at school. She never had any friends her own age. She never went any place, just stayed with LaSalle in the trailer. And she thought LaSalle seemed abnormally possessive of the girl, which, same. I also think he seems abnormally possessive. (laughs) She had tried to get Sally to open up about the true nature of her and Frank's relationship, but she wouldn't which I don't blame her. You know, she's not really trusting anybody at this point. In early... Good night- on her for asking, though. Yeah. Like, hell yeah. I mean, at least, you know, she's the only one so far who's been like, what the fuck's hey, going on here? is there something... Your dad seems a little weird. Birdman sucks. Something's, is something going something's on? weird here. Is, are you... Is everything okay at home? Like, which, no, it wasn't. Spoiler alert. In early 1950... The Janish family packed up to head west, and Ruth wrote a note to Frank telling them, telling him that he and Sally should follow them to California. Which, like, okay. She told him there were good work opportunities out west, and they could be neighbors again and have familiar faces around in a new place, which, like... Why not? If he wasn't a creepy asshole, that sounds great, you know? We're all, we're all buds, let's move out to California. Surprisingly, he agreed. Oh, hell yes. I know. I'm so glad. I know. It's possible... Keep her with the good lady. Yeah. It's possible he had some reason to leave Dallas, or he may have just noticed that Sally was seeming to be distancing herself from him a bit, and he thought a move would make them closer. Um, Especially with, you know, people she knows. Yeah. So in February of 1950, they left Dallas, and this time, rather than running from the law, it was more like they were running toward an opportunity. So, he seemed a little... He seemed like he was a little bit of a better mood. He wasn't like, oh, they're after me. We got a GTFO. Her name was Ruth, right? Yes. Ruth, set him up! I know. Set him up! Ruth is on the case. Their trip to California took at least a week, maybe longer. And on Saturday, March 18th, they pulled into the El Cortez Motor Inn in San Jose. Before leaving Dallas, Sally had actually already made a significant step by getting up the courage to tell a friend at school that her relationship with her quote-unquote father 
had a sexual aspect. The friend told her it was wrong and that she ought to stop. Oh, because she can control that. Yeah. Well, she didn't say like, oh, hey, you know, he's assaulting me on the daily. She was like, hey, my quote unquote dad and I are like, you know, having, having sex on the side. Like she didn't she she definitely played it down, I think. So, um, but her friend's comment seemed to sink in, and even though they were still keeping up the illusion that he was her father, she did begin refusing his sexual advances, advances, which go Sally. Go power! Uh, So she's starting to stand up for herself a little bit and gain a sliver of confidence. She's working up to admitting things, taking small steps, confiding in someone about at least part of the situation. I like to think that Ruth kickstarted that by asking questions. Maybe. That's entirely possible. It may not be, but it would make yeah. sense. Yeah, it does. So, she's still very much in deep with LaSalle and doesn't really see any way she can escape, but she is feeling a bit freer, and she was getting away with much less punishment than she used to get from him. It's possible that he was starting to lose interest in her, which sounds gross just saying, but, you know, it's the that's the truth he may have been um since she was turning 13 in a month you know since he's a disgusting pedophile and he might not like her as much now that she's getting older yeah or it could also be that he felt he didn't need to constantly torment her to keep her in his control i i feel like it could possibly be a combination of the two very possible i mean i think he definitely probably is getting comfortable thinking like oh yeah like she's you know used to just me listening to me at this point no longer a chase yeah once they got to california frank needed to find work pretty quickly so several days after arriving um he abandoned his car for reasons unknown and took the bus two miles away into town to look for a job so this was a good choice but he didn't know that um sally was enrolled in a school and it's possible she may have attended a few days of classes though there aren't any school records so we don't know but that morning sally didn't go to school and took the steps that changed the course of her life after being on the road with frank lasalle for 21 months go sally go Go, sally so this is where i'm gonna finish for part two oh boo you bitch in part three uh we'll talk about what happened that fateful morning and the final conclusion of what happened to Frank LaSalle and Sally Horner. It takes a pretty big twist, guys, so just get ready. Um, Buckle up! Buckle up. Buttercup! It's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) If you want to keep up with us and what we're doing, you can find us on Twitter. At Pardon Crime Pod. Hit us up on Instagram. At Pardon My Crime Pod. Or send us an email. PardonMyCrimePod at gmail.com. And let us know what you think. Request cases you think we should cover or anything else you think we should know about. Leave us a review, all that fun stuff. We hope you keep listening. And until next time, tell an adult if men are being creepy. Talk to an adult. Talk to an adult. (laughs) If a man. Or woman. Or woman. If an adult, if you are a child and and an adult is doing inappropriate things with you tell an, tell another adult <laughs> that's all i can think of <laughs>